passage this morning. So if you did not bring a Bible with you, you can just look around you in the seats all around you and you'll find a Bible. Grab one of those and open it up. We are going to be in the final week of our series, Meant for Good, which is covering Joseph's life. And as part of this, we are not just talking about Joseph's life. Uh, We are talking about our own lives and how God moves in our lives in the same way that he moved in Joseph's life. And I encourage you again, I've said this almost every week of this series, that unlike typical series, this is a progressive one. It doesn't just start and then each series or message stands alone. It's something that grows. It's something that builds. And so if for some reason you missed a week of this series, I encourage you to go back and listen to it on our website or you can also check it out on our podcast. Especially, especially if you missed the first week. Go back and listen to it, because we started with Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, laid the foundation with this scripture. This scripture, or a misunderstanding of this scripture, will lead us to a misunderstanding of God's character. And if we have a misunderstanding of God's character, then we misassign the things to him. Okay, so I'm just saying, go back and listen to it. There it says in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. If we have a misunderstanding of that, it throws everything else off. So please, please, please go back to it. Week two, we talked about the pit. Genesis chapter 37, as we discussed the question, okay, where is God in our suffering? Where is God in our suffering? And then last week, we talked about Genesis chapter 39 and 40. And we asked the question, how does temptation relate to testing? And how does God use both of them? Okay, so, so again, go back, listen to those. You can pick them up on our website, on our podcast, something like that. So if week one was on one verse, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, week two was on one chapter, Genesis chapter 37. That was talking about the suffering of Joseph. Last week was on two chapters, Genesis chapter 39 and chapter 40. And this week, as we talk about that final phase of Joseph's life that we see, that blessing that we're talking about, as we focus on that, we're not talking about one chapter. We're not talking about two chapters. We're talking about ten chapters, okay? And I think that's interesting. I think it's interesting that when you talk about the suffering, you talk about one chapter. I think it's interesting that when you talk about God's testing, you talk about two chapters. And then when you talk about God's blessing, you've got ten chapters, I just think that's interesting. So, but that also creates some difficulty because of the fact that we're preaching one sermon on 10 chapters of of Genesis. um, We're going to have to work at this thing because we can't just jump in and read all 10 chapters this morning. We'd be here all day. Okay, so what we're going to have to do is, best way to say it is we're going to skip across those 10 chapters. We'll take a rock and we'll skip it right across the 10 chapters. We'll stop, we'll hit a spot, and then we'll jump on, okay? The problem with that is it makes for a disjointed message which means you need to work harder. So if for some reason the sermon's not as good as you want it to be this morning, it's your fault. Let's jump in Genesis chapter 41 this morning. Genesis chapter 41. We are talking about the end of of, uh, Joseph's life specifically. We're talking about as he is promoted to that highest position in the land, right after he interprets Pharaoh's dreams. And again, as we skip across this, I encourage you, if you've not read this story or heard it or read it in its entirety, to read it this week. Ten chapters may be a lot to preach a sermon on in one Sunday, but it's not a lot to read in one week, okay? So, so go back and listen to or read uh, Genesis chapter uh, 40 all the way through Genesis chapter 50. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 41, verse 39. There 
It's right after Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream. Pharaoh raises him up. Verse 39, here's what it says. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. And he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they went out, called out before him, bow the knee. And thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh. And without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Verse 45. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephanath Paneah. And he gave him the marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. So he sees this incredible blessing. He goes from being in prison to being number two in the land. And we don't know exactly what number two in the land means. It might mean that like Daniel, he's the head of all the administrators and everybody else answers to him. Or it might mean that he is one of a bunch of people who are number two in the land in various areas. Okay, We're not entirely sure. Different people say different things. But for whatever it is, he is moved from this place that is down in the depths to this highest, highest position in the land. Number two, it says, right under Pharaoh. Nobody else is over him besides Pharaoh. Not only that, though, it says that he gets a new name. He gets the name Zaphnath Paneah, which in Egyptian means something along the lines of God lives and he speaks in Egyptian. Not only does he get a good Egyptian name, he gets himself a good Egyptian wife, a woman named Asenath. And she is, according to this, the daughter of Potiphera, the priest of On. So Potiphera, similar name to Potiphar, comes from the same root, means a gift from the sun god. Potiphar, okay, so Potiphar, a different person, because this one's the priest of On, and he marries her daughter, and some people struggle with this, because they say, so now he's marrying the daughter of a priest of a foreign faith, and, and I can understand some of the concern there, and, and yet scripture never says that he makes an error here, never says that he's guilty of sin, and, and in fact, scripture never forbids them from marrying an Egyptian, Forbids them from marrying Canaanites. And so he marries this woman. And in spite of the fact that he might cause concern, remember again, God tested him for 13 years. And during that time, God was preparing him for this moment. So in spite of the fact that he is elevated to this highest place in the land, gets a good Egyptian name, a proper Egyptian wife, Now he's in control. Verse uh, 46 says that Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all of the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt. And he put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it. 
for it could not be measured. Okay, we're seeing incredible blessing in Joseph's life, but also in the land of Egypt. And as a result, he's storing this up. And he says, for a while, they're keeping track of it. So they know exactly how much, but then it gets to the point where they can't even track it anymore. They can't keep track of how much grain that they have collected. Okay, so you see incredible blessing. And this happens within a period of seven years, from the time he's 30 to the time that he's 37. Now, during that time, there's something else that happens too. Okay, there's actually several milestones that Joseph experiences in his life. In the very next verse, it talks about it. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. And Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. And the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So he has two sons. And, and some people think that they're twins, that they're born at the same time. Scripture doesn't tell us that's the case, and so probably it's not. The older of the two is Manasseh, the younger of the two is Ephraim. And in spite of the fact that he has an Egyptian name, when he's deciding, what shall I call my kids? He gives them Jewish names. He calls the first Manasseh, which means made to forget. Made to forget. And he says the reason for that is God has made him forget all of his hardships and forget his father's house. He names the second one Ephraim, which means made fruitful. And he says God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction, which is a great turn of phrase, by the way. Fruitful in the land of my affliction. That's a great turn of phrase. But he names his second Ephraim. Those are pretty major things that happen. But there's another one that's not mentioned in Scripture that we know that happens during this same time. And it's kind of the best way to describe it is I'm actually coming up on this same exact uh, 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 milestone in my life. You see, many years ago, I moved from Kenosha, Wisconsin to Springfield, Missouri. It was a move that um, was a significant move for me because I was young. But in the next year or two, I will officially cross over the halfway point, or I shouldn't say it that way, the point at which I have lived in Springfield, Missouri, longer than I lived in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Which means that when I walk around and someone asks me where you're from, I can no longer say Kenosha, Wisconsin. I will instead have to say I'm from Springfield, Missouri, because I've lived here longer. I'm also coming up on the, on the uh, flip-over point of having been with Liz longer than having not known her, right? So, so there's some pretty major milestones coming up. For Joseph, right in between that 30 and 37, we don't know when the boys are, mar- are, are, are born. Maybe he's 32 and 36. Maybe he's 33 and 34. But right at that 34 mark... He officially has lived in Egypt longer than he lived in Canaan. He has lived without his father and brothers longer than he has lived with his father and brothers. He has been in Egypt longer than he was in Canaan. This is a significant point. And when he names his sons, he names the first made to forget because God has made him forget his His sufferings has made him forget his hardships. And he says, made to forget his father's 
house. He says, God's blessing has been so fully on me that that is in the past. God has blessed me. And really, truly, think about Joseph's life. He is just incredibly blessed. This is the apex of the blessing you could look at and say. I mean, he is in Egypt, and I'm sure there are nights when he lays down at night and he thinks, I wonder if we've saved enough grain. I wonder if when the famine hits, if we're going to be prepared for it. I'm sure there are questions like that, but in general, when he lays his head down at night, he lays his head down as a blessed man. And so when he reflects on his life, he says, God has blessed me in the land of my affliction. He has made it so that I forgot those sufferings and forgot, I have forgotten my father's house. That's what he names his kids. And that seems to be what God is doing. God's blessing him there. God's taking care of him. It seems like everything he needs, he has. But then everything changes. If you skip down, and this is one of those times when you're going to have to skip, 42 verse 6. So down like three, four paragraphs. 42 verse 6. Now Joseph was governor over the land. And we don't know if he's the guy who regularly disperses the grain, if he's always there overseeing it, or if it just so happens that on this particular day he goes to see about the disbursement of the grain. What he doesn't know is that Jacob has sent his sons, ten of them, all of them except for Benjamin that are left, he sends these sons. And I think sometimes we picture it like these guys are 18, 19 years old. Remember, they're older than Joseph. And if Joseph at this point, this is two years into the famine, Joseph at this point is 39 years old. So he is still able to say, go, and his sons who are 40s all go. Each with their own families, they leave their families and head down to Egypt in order to get grain to bring it back because this famine is difficult in the land. Joseph knows that there's five more years But we don't know that they know that. Like this is something that they're just thinking maybe there's a few more months, maybe there's another year. So they go to get enough grain to survive. Jacob just sends them off. Joseph on this particular day at least is there dispersing the grain, overseeing it, and here's what happens. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. So maybe when they were on their way down to Egypt, they wondered. I wonder if this is the same path that Joseph took when we sold him into slavery 22 years ago. Or maybe they didn't. But they don't expect to see Joseph. And definitely don't expect this Egyptian overlord by the name of Zephanath Paneah to be Joseph. They stand before him. They fall on their faces before them. And they do not recognize who he is. But Joseph, of course, recognizes them. Verse 9 is an incredible verse to, to help us to understand this moment. It says, and Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. So here he is, overseer, dispersing grain, and his brothers come and go face down in front of him. And all of a sudden, those dreams that he had with the grain in the fields bowing to his grain, all of that comes rushing back. 
All of those things that even he said, Manasseh, his, name, his son's name is Manasseh, because the Lord has made him to forget. Now all of those things come rushing back. He sees these brothers bowed down before him, and all of that, I, I think even visually, he just catches it. He sees it. It's, it overloads him. And I think sometimes we think, when we read this story, that Joseph has this entire plan laid out in front of him. Like between verse 9 and 10, or even the first sentence of verse 9 and the second sentence, And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. Like, what's going through Joseph's brain there? Some people, like, when we hear this story, we think Joseph has this big plan. Like, he's got it all laid out. I'm going to accuse them of being spies. And then I'm going to throw them in jail. And then I'm going to let nine of them go back and keep one. And I'm going to tell them they need to bring Benjamin back. And then when Benjamin gets back, I'm going to treat him to a nice meal. But before they even go, I'm going to put the silver back in their bags full of grain just to make them feel guilty. And then when they get back, I'm going to, I'm going to put the silver cup in Benjamin's bag. And I'm going to send them back. And then I'm going to accuse him. And then I'm going to tell him I'm going to, I'm going to kill him. And then we'll see what happens then. Right? That's When you read it, you're almost like Joseph has it all figured out. But when you read this... In verse 9, it says he remembered the dreams. It's like he is overwhelmed, and I think legitimately he's just like trying to get traction here. Even as you keep reading, skip down like to verse 15. Verse 15, it says, By this you shall be tested, by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not go from this place until your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So his initial plan is, I'm going to keep nine of you and send one of you back. Right? That's his plan. Because there's ten of them. He says, I'll keep nine of you and send one of you back to get Benjamin. And if you don't come back with Benjamin, then I'm going to know you're spies. But then verse 17 says, and he put them all together in custody for three days. So now he throws them in jail. And while they're in jail, his plan changes. Verse 18, on the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. And then it says, continues on, and it says, um, so your words will be verified and you shall not die, and they did so. So what it's saying is somewhere in those three days, Joseph stops, and he goes, the plan I had, that's not going to work. And he comes up with a different plan, because he goes from saying, I'm going to keep nine of you and send one back, to I'm going to keep one of you and send nine back, right? Like he shifts. Somewhere in those three days, something changes for Joseph. And at the very least, we know part of it is he's concerned about his family. Because look, even in verse 19, what does it say? He says, if you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody. Let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. During those three days while his brothers are incarcerated, he thinks, wait, if I do that, if I only send one back, they're not going to be able to carry enough grain for the house. And my family will suffer. So Joseph changes his plan and he says, I'll keep one here and send nine back. 
So this is not just a testing. Joseph is showing the fact that he is concerned about his family. So he develops a new plan. I don't think he had it all laid out. I think he's working it out as he goes along. And so during those three days, I believe there's something else that happened. I think Joseph comes to a realization of, wait a second. I thought God was just blessing me in the land of my affliction. But my brothers showed up and everything changed. Maybe God has me here so that my family will survive the famine. And so during those three days, he changes his plan and he sends back nine and keeps one. After he tells them this, verse 21, this is what it says. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered him, answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. And then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. So here's his plan. His plan is to send nine back. While they're talking about this, the brothers begin to talk amongst themselves. And what they say is, we are responsible. We're responsible for what's happening to us right now. We, what is happening to us is a result of what we did to Joseph, which I guess is kind of true. Because of the fact they sold him into slavery, now he's here. But they see it as their destruction. <coughs> they see it as punishment. In reality, it's their salvation. So Joseph says, well, first off, he hears them talking, hearing about not only did the dreams come rushing back, but now he hears them talking about the time he was in the pit. We read this a couple weeks ago. From their perspective. So while he's in the pit, clawing at the sides, trying to get out, his brothers were like, overwhelmed even almost, it seems, by his struggles. And they say as a result of that, now his blood is upon us. And it's overwhelming for him. He cries. He turns away. It almost seems like maybe he left the room <clears throat> cried and then came back. He comes back to them. He takes Simeon, puts him in jail, sends them off. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. <coughs> and as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of the sack. And he said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And at this their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? And there's a question. Why does Joseph do this? Some people think that this is a part of the test. Except if you follow that money, follow the money, it goes back with them to Canaan, and then they send it back the next time they need grain, but they double it. They say, okay, and they, and they come and they bring it to Joseph Stewart and they say, hey, you guys made a mistake last time. You accidentally put the money back in these bags full of grain. 
And the steward tells them, no, we didn't. If that's the case, then God must have done that for you. And the matter is dropped. Like it never comes up again. Joseph isn't testing them here. He is blessing them. Here they are in this in Egypt. And first off, he thinks, okay, I got to send nine back. But when he sends them back, he sends them back with the money that they sent in order to buy the grain. He is blessing them, but they don't see it that way. They see it as a curse from God. What is this that God has done to us? So they head off and they come back. Uh, bring Benjamin back with them, and, 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 God, and, and Joseph does test them with the silver cup. He puts it in Benjamin's bag, and then Benjamin is accused of this. Judah steps up to the plate and says, take my life instead. Okay, so you get all of that. Then Joseph reveals himself. We're skipping all the way over to Genesis chapter 46 today, okay? Genesis, uh, let's go to Genesis 45, sorry. Genesis 45, verse 4. This is Joseph revealing himself to his brothers. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I'm your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine that has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. Verse 7. And God sent me here before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made a father to Pharaoh. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, the Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. So here he says, wait a second. I know you're upset. I know you're nervous. I know you're afraid, but don't be. Because God has been working behind the scenes. Okay? And what a change in what Joseph says is going on between chapter 41 and chapter 45. In 41, he says, God is blessing me in the land of my affliction. He has brought me here and he has helped me to forget my father's house. And now, that's not what he says. Now he says, God brought me here in order to help our family through this famine. See, this is a difficult famine. It didn't just affect Egypt, it also affected Canaan. And, and those are two totally different water sources. Uh, uh, Egypt is, is supplied by the Nile, Canaan was supplied by water from, from, from rain. And so if you have these two separate water sources that are both failing, this is a very significant famine. So he says, man, this famine, it's, it's, we're only two years into it, and there's five more. So God has brought me here to preserve from our family a remnant of survivors. He says, now here's what I want you to do. Go up. Verse 9, hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. Verse 10, you shall dwell in the land of Goshen. And you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin sees, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. 
And Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. So he sends them back. He actually sends with them wagons. And he says, load everybody up, including my dad, and bring him down here because there's still five more years of famine. And again, I don't know that the brothers knew it before Joseph says this. Joseph knows it because he's, he's been a part of that whole process, but the brothers don't know it. Maybe they just thought it was going to be a couple more months. Who knows? But Joseph says, there's five more years. Load everybody up. Move down here. We'll settle you in Goshen. It's a good land, and we'll take care of you. We will provide for you during this time. In fact, that's why God sent me down here. God sent me down here to preserve a remnant from our family. So they go back up, and they do exactly what he says. They load everybody up. Chapter 46. This is the last portion of Scripture we're going to read. Verses 1 through 4. Genesis 46. Verse 1 says, so Israel, Jacob, Israel took his journey with all that he had. And he came to Beersheba, and he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hands shall close your eyes. This is, to me, it sticks out. These four verses stick out like a sore thumb. There's a couple reasons for that. Number one, it says that God appears to Jacob and tells him not to be afraid to go to Egypt. But he doesn't appear in the valley of Hebron before Jacob leaves. Jacob's already well on his way. He's in Beersheba, which is on its way to Egypt. He comes there, he stops, he sacrifices in this place where his ancestors had sacrificed as well. And while he's there, God appears to him a quarter of the way and says, don't be afraid to go to Egypt. Well, Jacob was already on his way. Why would God appear to him and tell him, don't worry about it? Now, maybe Jacob, while he was going, started getting cold feet, and he would have reason to. There'd be some reason for him to question, what am I doing and why am I doing it? Because this is not the first famine in the land. Maybe he remembered from when he was a kid, and there was a famine in the land then, and it was severe. And you know what it says in Genesis chapter 26? You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to be there for a second. Genesis chapter 26, verse 1. This is his father, Isaac, during his time. Jacob is alive because his birth story comes right before this. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in the land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. So God tells Isaac, don't worry about it. I know there's a famine, but don't go down into Egypt. So Isaac doesn't. He settles there, and God blesses him there, right in the midst of the famine. And it says here, and if you go back further, we're not going to, but in Genesis chapter 12 and 13, Abraham experienced a famine during his days. Now, in his instance, he didn't stop. He didn't ask God. He just went to Egypt. He gets there. There's a curse on Pharaoh's household as a result of how Abraham handles himself. 
And so he has to leave Egypt and come back to Canaan. So Abraham tried to go to Egypt, and he couldn't. Isaac is warned against going to Egypt. And here's Jacob on his way. Maybe he gets to Beersheba, and he starts questioning. Um, wait, God. Should I be going to Egypt? Or maybe he doesn't, and maybe God just realizes that he needs to assure him. So it says that God appears to him in a dream, and he tells him, do not be afraid. I will go down with you, and I myself will bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. So this portion of scripture sticks out for that reason. But there's another reason why it sticks out. These four verses are the only time in the last 10 chapters of Genesis where it tells us, by God's own words, what God is doing. This is the only time, and the last time it happened was the last verse we read last week, which was in Genesis chapter 39, verse 23, where Joseph was in the prison, and it says that, that God was with him and God blessed him in everything he put his hand to. So we know that God did that. But this is from chapter 40 of Genesis all the way through chapter 50 of Genesis. This is the only time that the scriptures, in, in, in the words of the scriptures, say this is what God is doing. Every other time, it is someone else saying what God is doing, which is significant. In fact, it doesn't say that God gave Joseph the interpretation to Pharaoh's dreams. It says, Joseph said, God can give me the interpretation of your dream. And then it says, Joseph gave the interpretation to Pharaoh. It never says God gave the interpretation to Joseph. And in fact, it doesn't say that God made Joseph to forget his family. It says, Joseph said, God has made me to forget my father's house. It doesn't say that God blessed him and made him fruitful in the land of his affliction. It says, Joseph said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Every time it says what God is doing, it is through the perspective or the eyes of one of the people involved. Okay? Obviously, God is moving. Obviously, God is working in this scripture. But this is the only place where it actually tells us what God is doing in the words of God himself. Every other time, it's in the words of one of the people in the story. Read it sometime. It's interesting. So ten chapters straight, this is the only four verses. These verses right here are the only ones that tell us what God is actually doing. And as you watch Joseph's life, is there not a progression of understanding? He starts with, God has blessed me. God has blessed me here in, in, in Egypt, and he's taken care of me, and he's made it so that I've forgotten my family. And then you give him a little time. And somewhere along there he realizes, wait, my brother showed up. I remember the dreams. Wait a second, there's something bigger happening here. God has set it up so that a remnant of my family might survive this fam or famine. Okay, I see what God's doing. And yet, God preserved Isaac in the midst of Canaan through famine. Why couldn't he do the same for Jacob? And what about that verse we read last week, Psalm 105? We read this passage, and we, we kind of like read really quick through verse 16. I kind of wanted to gloss over it, because I didn't want anybody to raise their hand and go, hey, what about verse 16? I didn't want to get to it until this week. We read verses 17, 18, 19. Here's what it says, verse 16. When he, he being God, summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread... 
Wait, God brought the famine? I thought God was preserving them from the famine. Wait, so you're telling me God didn't see the weather patterns a changing and thought, I got to get somebody to Egypt? There's something else going on here. There is something else that is happening, which is why uh, uh, Genesis chapter 46 verses 1 through 4 are so important. Because this is the only place that actually tells us what God is doing. Here's what it says. Genesis chapter 46 verses 1 through 4. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Verse 3. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you a great nation. He is not trying to preserve just a remnant, a few survivors from his family. His family is 70 strong, and he's about to make them into a great nation. And Joseph has no idea. He thinks he's just trying to preserve them through the famine. When God's design and what God has turned this evil into is so far beyond that. He has no idea. And it never says that Jacob tells any of the boys. He keeps it to himself. In fact, Joseph doesn't realize even beyond this. I mean, right until the very end, right at the very, while he's on the deathbed, he says to his brothers, he says, and to his descendants, he says, God is going to visit you and bring you up out of Egypt. Kind of an inkling of what God is doing. He's not preserving a remnant. He's building a nation. He's not making it. And, and, and Joseph, his understanding of what God is doing, you see this progression, but he never fully grasps the good that God is doing. He's sitting here and he says, I'm going to name my son Ephraim. Fruitful in the land of affliction, having no idea how perfect a name that is. Made fruitful in the land of my affliction. He names his other son Manasseh, saying, God has made me to forget my father's house. When in reality, what God is doing is making it so that no one in all of eternity ever forgets the name of his father's house. That's what God's doing. And Joseph has no idea. They, they miss it completely. And even his brothers, you know, I mean, you see God working good in all of these situations. The pit, the passion, the power, you see it all. God's working in it. But, but the brothers, they're sitting here and they're saying, oh man, God is punishing us. When they don't realize that it's their salvation. They think God is cursing us. When in fact it's a blessing. They miss what God is doing. And here's the thing. God never assures us that we will understand what he is doing. In fact, the scriptures seem to indicate that most of the time we won't. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 5 says just about that very thing. It says, as you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. And Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 says... In all your ways, or trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. It never says that we're going to understand what God's doing. And you know what? He never asks us to. 
He doesn't tell us. I want you to understand what I'm doing. He doesn't ask us to understand what he's doing. He asks us to trust what he's doing. You know, sometimes I think that we come at it the wrong way. We don't walk into a room and try to understand electricity before we turn on the light. We don't sit there in the dark room until we understand it. It's enough to know that you turn on the light switch and the light comes on. We don't have to understand God's plan to stand under God's plan. And we spend all this time trying to understand what God is doing. We spend all this time trying to figure it out. What is God doing in this situation? And what is God doing in this situation? Most of the time, we're not going to have any idea. In fact, one of the wisest things someone ever told me, I was going through a situation that was difficult. And I remember sitting across the table from someone that I respect greatly. And this person was looking back at me and said, I have no idea what God is doing in your life. I don't know what he's about right now. I don't know how he's working this for good. But he said, you have two choices. You can either trust God now, or you can wish you had later on. And when people try to figure out what God is doing, I'll tell you, man, those are possibilities. Might even be a probability. But the vast majority of these last 10 chapters, they misunderstand what God is doing. You know it's not a possibility? You know it's not a probability? God's promises. And God might not ask us to understand what he is doing, but he does ask us to trust his promises. And God's promises are not possibilities. God's promises are not probabilities. They are at yes and amen in Christ Jesus. So, as we take this series and we tie it back around itself, as we try to make a handle on it on which we can carry, let me leave you with this as we talk about how God works all of these things. Let me leave you with a promise. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That is a promise. It's not a probability. It's not a possibility. But it is a promise. And in the midst of situations where we might not know how God is working things together for good, we don't need to. But we do need to trust his promise he will take these things that are evil and he will turn them around for good. So, as we close this series, my prayer, my hope is that it burns deeply in our souls, that we don't walk away from it and forget it, but instead we cling to that promise, trusting in every temptation and every testing, trusting in every pit 
or suffering, that God works all things together for good. And here's the thing. Sometimes we might figure it out. Sometimes we might be able to step back and look at it and say, okay, God, now I see what you're doing. Sometimes we won't know it until the other side of heaven. But the promise remains. He works all things together for good. And that promise is something that we can carry. That promise is something we can cling to in the midst of every struggle, every failure, every sin, every temptation, every testing. Somehow, God takes that which was designed for evil and turns it together and works it together for good. Father, I thank you for this series. I thank you for Joseph's life. I thank you for how you moved in his life because this is so close to how you move in our lives. We see it. We recognize it. God, at the same time, we don't understand it. There are so many things that are beyond us. May we not be guilty of spending more time trying to figure out what you're doing that we lose the fact that we need to trust that you're doing it. That we're trying to figure out how you're moving instead of just trusting that you are. God, may we not be guilty of losing sight of your promises because we're focusing on possibilities or probabilities. May we instead cling to your promise and hold fast to it through everything, oh God. And if we do not see how you are working things together for good, until the other side of heaven, we rest assured that we will. We rest assured that there will come a day when we will say, oh God, you are so great and glorious. And now I see what you were doing. We trust and we believe that that day will come in spite of the fact it might be in eternity. God, right now I pray, I don't want this to be the type of series that we feel like we can just walk away from because we had a time of worship at the end. Instead, I just want this to be the type of series I feel like we need to have this be the type of thing where as we walk out, it goes with us. And that as we endure things, as we walk through things, that it just sits and, and, it, and it, it, it's there. And we have that promise to hold to in the midst of it, oh God. So may this be the type of thing that as we walk out of these doors today, that we carry it along with us. May we cling to that promise you have made, that you do work all things together for good for those who are called according to your good purpose. We love you. We praise you. We ask this in your precious name, Jesus. Amen.